Welcome to In Conversation with Our Food Future, the podcast series that's following the creation of Canada's first circular food economy here in Guelph, Wellington. I'm Barbara Swartzentuber, Executive Director of the Smart Cities Office and host of this podcast series. On today's show, we are exploring food waste and loss across the food system from farm to production, packaging, distribution, and ultimately consumer consumption. I'm joined today by two international experts on the subject, one from right here in Guelph and the other many time zones ahead of us in Amsterdam. So let's pull our chairs around the kitchen table and get the conversation started. Cher Merriweather is president and CEO of Provision Coalition, Inc., one of our food future collaborators. Cher works closely with food and beverage companies from across the supply chain, transforming business decision-making, culture, and operations to one that is circular. She's held leadership positions with the Canadian Agri-Food Think Tank, George Morris Centre, and the Guelph Food Technology Centre. Cher has been awarded the Canadian Grocer Generation Next Award for her innovation and excellence in sustainability within the food and beverage industry. Tamara Streifland is the city's program lead at Metabolic, a global consultancy based in Amsterdam that uses systems thinking to tackle global sustainability challenges. Tamara has been involved in a range of projects regarding sustainable cities with a focus on topics such as water ecologies, the freight sector, waste systems, and renewable energy. Her background as an earth scientist allows her to integrate knowledge of scientific processes with creative solutions that engage novel technologies and are sensitive to social issues. Welcome, Sharon Tamara. Cher, let's start by discussing food loss in the industry. Product loss due to waste seems somewhat inevitable in any system, unfortunately. But you work closely with food businesses, and part of that work is to help them reduce avoidable waste in their operations. How do you define avoidable and unavoidable food waste? It's a great question, Barb, and thanks for having me here today. Uh, For us, avoidable waste is anything that is intended for human consumption that doesn't actually end up as human uh, food for human consumption. So that's sort of how we define, that's the avoidable stuff. The unavoidable waste is anything that is a byproduct of production or processing. And so things that you would typically think of, you know, the peels of an orange, or the tops of a carrot, or the bones of an animal. Those are unavoidable byproducts. And so we would say that those are unavoidable in terms of the production process, but they may still, in fact, have nutrient value. And so by being able to distinguish the avoidable waste, we can prevent that. The unavoidable is a natural consequence of the production process, but is there still an opportunity for us to identify the nutrient value and upcycle it into other products. So that's typically how we will engage with our clients or our partners on what's avoidable and what's unavoidable. Sure, that's a, I think it's a really important distinction, um, but I'm just curious, we use the word avoidable, but we kind of think, and, and to some extent the industry thinks that uh, some of that 
avoidable food waste is inevitable in the system. Do you, do you believe that? Do you think you can avoid all of the waste? For me, it's a mindset. So when we are engaging with food companies, oftentimes we'll hear, you know what, food waste is really not a problem for us. It's really well managed. We're diverting it away from landfill, and that's our goal. Uh, we're sending it to animal feed. We're sending it to an anaerobic digester or a composter. So it's actually not an issue for us. And for when we are working with them, we want to shift their mindset into a way of thinking that if we're diverting, asking the question of why. Why are we actually diverting? Is it product that is that we can actually prevent from having to be diverted? So the question is around, you know, is there going to be inevitable waste in every system? Probably a little bit, but I think there is a mountain of opportunity in shifting the way we think about whether or not it can be avoided in the first place and not accepting that at least I've diverted it and I've, I've managed it and shifting our mindset to, well, how do we prevent it from having to be diverted in the first place? Yeah, that's a that's a good distinction, sort of managing it versus, um, you know, thinking about it differently and what the possibilities are. And uh, earlier this year, uh, our project commissioned a food and food waste flow study um, in order to really try to get a better understanding of where avoidable food waste occurs across the food system in the region that we're working in, which is Guelph and Wellington County. And I, I think this review is one of the first of its kind in Canada for sure, but it was led by several partners, including Dillon Consulting, University of Guelph, and your organization, Tamara Metabolic. And I know you uh, folks have had a long history in doing this work and experience. And I just want to ask a little bit about why do you think um, capturing this kind of data is important when you think about a, a food system? And can you tell us a little bit more about the methodology that you've used and how you've, uh, and, and a little bit about some of the key findings? Sure, absolutely. Um, thanks for inviting me today. Um, so what we did for Guelph Wellington is really understanding where we are now, because if we want to go somewhere else to a more circular or sustainable food system, we really need to just start with understanding um, where we are now, right? So uh, what we did is create a material flow analysis. So what we do is we map the system both from the consumption, so everything that is eaten and goes into the region of Guelph Wellington, but also from production, all the food that is produced. Now, what is a material flow analysis? It helps us understand the resources that flow into the system, where do they go, but also where there is waste. And like Cher was mentioning, also avoidable and unavoidable waste. But it goes even further than the quantity of flows. It also talks about um, the impact of some of these quantities. So not only thinking about uh, the percentages of waste produced, for example, by households or by hotels, um, but also thinking about uh, the carbon emissions associated with them and taking that even further to water use, land degradation, or the land use simply by producing the food. What we did is we mapped all the way through the supply chain to see where all the waste or where most waste flows come from. And what we see here, and those are some of the interesting insights, I guess, is that for all the food that comes into Guelph Wellington, 55% is lost along the way. Um, Almost half of this is avoidable. So when we think about 
what we can do with that information is that it helps us identify leverage points of high value and high value opportunities that can divert this, right? So for, for the region here, we saw that for storage and packaging, for example, there's there's a lot of waste coming from that, and then specifically from fruits. Um, what we also saw was that there's a lot of food already produced in the region, um, more than double the amount that is consumed uh, in terms of wheat is produced in the region. Um, so how do you build an analysis like this? Uh, we used over 70 recent data sets, both top-down, so meaning we've used national data sets, but also bottom-up, really using local data to ground truth that. But along the way, making sure that we keep it as uh, open source as possible so that we can use it for other regions as well, because of course that's what we all want, right? Like to, to create this transition to a more sustainable world as soon as possible, um, allowing other players to do it as well. That's great, Tamara. And uh, yeah, I think I think the results uh, that we found were startling and and not and not surprising at the same time. I, we we do know that you know upwards of forty percent of the food doesn't make it to the plate, um, but we don't have good data looking at a specific region so that you can start to create interventions within that region. So the work that uh, your team has done and the partnership has done is really helping us to get the data we need to make some of those interventions um, uh, targeted clearly at what the local issues are. Cher, you, you, you deal on the ground in some of these areas. Would you say there are aspects of these findings that are a surprise to you or not? You know what, the, the findings actually mirrored what we are seeing on the ground also. Um, certainly in the uh, Our Food Future work, we're working with a craft brewer, so we're seeing a lot of the spent grain, uh, which would make sense as an unavoidable, um, the craft beer going down the drain, also seeing that uh, the fruit and vegetables definitely been um, an area where we have seen a lot of uh, prevention opportunity. Bakeries and meat are also big areas for us that we see a lot, and that mirrors what was found in the in the food flow study also. So certainly we are seeing very similar things at a regional level that we would see uh, both in the, our, in the Our Food Future work, but also in our national work across the country. And and that only makes sense because the local is really a mirror of uh, of the national and the global. So, um, when when we get to this next stage of the work, Tamara, that that is really about starting to look at those interventions um, into the hotspots, things that you've mentioned like food storage and packaging. What kind of uh, sh shape do you think this stage of the work will look like? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, what are we going to do with all of that information, right? <laughs> We're going yeah. to activate it. Yeah. So, so the idea of an an, uh, an analysis like this is that we really identify leverage points and that we use these as a starting point to bring the right players together. The great part of of being part of this bigger project is that there is already so much happening, right? So, what we are trying to do is to identify these these five or ten directions in which we see a real opportunity. So part of that, of course, is related to what we eat, consumption, and there's already a couple of work packages or pathways working on that. There's also a couple of uh, the packaging you mentioned, that that's a large opportunity. So let's bring these players in. 
Um, so what we're really trying to do is first dive in a bit more on what are these exact hotspots and also what change would we like to see in terms of them, right? Like where do we want to bring it? And then we're going to think about what kind of business opportunities and interventions could be proposed, but also what are the challenges into implementing these, right? And can we think together or collaborate on how to overcome them? So it's really about um, linking it to the rest of the, the, the people uh, and players and companies and what uh, academia, everyone should be at the table to really think collaboratively on uh, the types of interventions we can propose. And then the nice thing about having this material flow analysis is that we can also think about what the impact of some of these business models will be. So thinking about both impact on the on where we are now, right, but also about feasibility. So how can we make sure that we have every uh, everything in place to start making it happen? The other thing that I would add to the discussion is when we're looking at the flow, we're looking at, you know, where is the amount of waste happening and how do we how do we intervene there's also different ways that we can slice and dice the data to look at what are the environmental impacts in those areas that are hotspots and what are the calorie impacts in the areas that are hotspot and what about the greenhouse gas emissions and also what about the dollar impact for the business itself so when we look at some of our data of the companies that we've engaged you know, meat comes to the top really quickly when we look at it from a calorie or a dollar impact to the business, um, yet when we look at environmental impact or um, GHG impact, then suddenly the beverage or particularly craft breweries come, come up to the top. So it is really important that we slice and dice the data in a way that is going to be meaningful for all of the players and get the greatest impact across, across holistically, if you will. Yeah, that that's an important observation, share because I think that, um, you know, it's that basic one size doesn't fit all. And it's, it's once you have the first layer of data, it's, you know, can you go to the next layer that really tells you where the clear uh, opportunities are to make the biggest impact. So that's a really excellent point. Um, you know, speaking of big impact, some of the work that you've done in uh, for as part of this project, share and and the work that you do at Provision, you've helped several companies come together to really look at their uh, their food waste streams and find new value for them. And you created something called uh, Canada's First Circular Meal. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and some of the strategies that you use to help those food businesses find ways to? Uh, not only reduce, but valorize their waste streams. Absolutely. It, it actually started with Wellington Brewery, where we first identified that there was beer going down the drain, and obviously that costs their business money and there's environmental impact. And so we started there and sort of got a handle on how do we prevent the beer from going down the drain. And then we sort of stood in this possibility of, well, is there more that we can do, going back to my comment about the unavoidable waste and the spent grains, and we started saying, hmm, surely there is more than just animal feed. We can keep it in the human supply chain for as long as possible. And so we started to branch out into our network and start asking questions. You know, what if we did this with the spent grain, or could we actually do something else? And in the end, what we did was we sent a portion of the spent grain to a local black soldier fly farm, uh, Orca Solutions, and they took that and turned it into a, um, a fish meal. 
And then the other portion of the spent grain we sent to a local baker, Grain Revolution, uh, along with another partner organization, Escarpment Labs, who had spent yeast. So we took two waste products, spent yeast and spent grain, and created a, a beautiful sourdough bread. Then we took the, the, the orca, um, a fish meal or fish feed, and sent that over to Azumi Aquaculture, and they fed that to their rainbow trout. And then we said, well, hmm, we've got fish and we've got bread. Is there a way that we could actually make a meal? We started with this idea of can we make a fish burger, and then we sort of expanded into can we actually make a plated meal? And so we took the fish uh, detritus or the fish poop and sent it over to Smoy Farms. They're a local potato farmer. And they put it on their fields. And then we brought the potatoes, the uh, rainbow trout, and the sourdough bread to uh, the neighborhood group, which is the largest B Corp chain uh, restaurant chain, and said, all right, magical chefs, do your, do your thing here. And uh, they took the three ingredients and created three different meals um, at Park Cafe, um, Majita Cafe, and the Woolwich Pub. And it was really exciting to be able to, to show what can happen when we think differently about our food. So a gourmet meal made out of um, a waste byproduct. And what I think is the most exciting thing that has come out of that meal is, is actually the launch of the Repurpose Incubator which is now about, well, how do we actually do that in a more meaningful way for any company that has unavoidable byproduct? Um, we see that the trend for upcycled food is, is really strong. Uh, food me- uh, FoodBev Media says it's in the top five trends uh, in Canada. We're seeing that 60% of consumers are willing to buy some form of upcycled product, whether it is food or cosmetics or even pharmaceuticals. We think there's a tremendous opportunity here to really bring this idea of reimagining food uh, into, into light. That's terrific. And I had that circular meal and it was really good. So I had it too and it was excellent. (laughs) Thanks for your work on that. Um, Just as part of the wrap up and then in the last five minutes, I like to ask uh, this question and it's really about um, asking you to share Uh, about a memorable meal, a family or cultural food tradition, or a connection to the land and growing food that's meaningful to you. And I ask uh, people to reflect on that because I find that the people that are working on this initiative are really all in. They're very passionate about the work they do. And um, and because food is so elemental to who we are as humans and how we express our love and caring, it, it is a, uh, a, a effort of uh, not just a professional effort, but an effort of passion that I find that people bring to this work. So I'm, Tamara, can you share a little bit about... Um, uh, about your passion and about something that's memorable to you about food. Sure, that's what a wonderful question. I mean, for me, there a lot. Of, a lot of this is a lot of things are memorable about food, uh, especially <laughs> when you think about these big family dinners, of course. But one um, one in particular that is quite uh, old already. Uh, it was in my first year of, of studying. I think some of my fellow. Uh, students um, had an initiative called the Toasty Industry or the Toasty Company uh, or the Toasty Farm. What they did is they grew a toasty from scratch. So they just had a a place in in Amsterdam in the city and they started um, having a bit of wheat there, a tomato for the ketchup. Uh, They had a cow to make the cheese 
and then they also had some uh, some figs to make ham. And it was a really nice, like this was in the center of Amsterdam, right? So this was a really nice way of showing how you make a toasty. And I had one of these um, at the final event. Uh, but I think stuff like that really brings you brings brings the food close to your plate. Let's just call it that. So that was uh, quite a memorable toasty I had. You got to love Amsterdam with the cow in the middle of the city. Can't wait to can't wait to visit. Cher, how about you? You know what? Some of my earliest memories um, are with my dad in the in the vegetable garden. Um, playing. I could be anywhere playing in the neighborhood. My dad would just sort of yell and I'd come running because it was time to, to plant in the vegetable garden. So for me, I'm, I'm deeply connected to that, not necessarily on a farm side, but just that notion of growing your own food. And then um, my mom hit on my mom's side, my grandfather had his own grocery store and was known for these incredible Italian sausages and Italian meatballs. And so for me, those, the memories of, of taking that product and turning it into something and it, and having a little local grocery store are really real for me too. That's wonderful. Wow. I always leave the, these conversations super hungry. Um, I can't thank you enough. And I think those stories sort of are emblematic of the passion that you bring to this work. And I, I just want to thank each of you for your contributions to this initiative. So thank you very much. It's our pleasure. Well, thank, thank you for you. Uh, having us. I'm Barb Schwarzentuber, Executive Director of the Smart Cities Office and host of In Conversation with Our Food Future. Thanks for joining me today. If you have ideas for a show or comments, you can email us at foodfutureatguelph.ca. Until next time, take care and let's keep the conversation going on foodfuture.ca.